Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Chaloner, the host, and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Claire Austin. Claire is the Managing Director of Claire Austin Hardy Plants, a plant retail business based in Newtown, Wales. Claire, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this afternoon. Thank you for asking me. Thank you, Claire. It's um, a real pleasure having you. And um, the purpose of this discussion is to really understand your take on leadership as a whole. And I think leadership, it's fair to say, is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and the need for different business leaders to really feel their way through this uncharted territory. Um, Tell me, for somebody working within your industry, how has it been navigating the last few weeks and months? Because I can imagine it has posed an incredible challenge and forced a great deal of adaptability from yourselves as well. Uh, It's quite interesting because we are primarily mail order or um, e-commerce. And so therefore, we were already um, set up for the barrage of orders that suddenly arrived one day onto the uh, website and we couldn't believe it. We might get six, 60 orders a day. So I mean, we had 230. And that was, a, that was the big challenge that uh, having decided we would stay open and we only have a small team, even with myself and my husband, there's only 10 of us. And we had already decided between my husband and I said, we have a small team here. We are a family with keeping it as a family. We're keeping it. We're not employing anyone else. And so therefore, the challenge was actually to get everyone to see this is possible. We can do it and um, we can work our way through it. We can get through these orders. We will sort ourselves out. But the way we did it was to actually empower everybody else to take charge as well, even the small team. So um, it was to make sure this primarily women, we have um, a couple of guys, but primarily women uh, who had to sort their childcare out and various other issues. And everybody had some problem. They had looking after a parent who was aged, someone else had ill, ill partner. And so we had to keep it very tight. Um, but knowing our staff and knowing them as people, has been a very important uh, way forward to make a success of where we are today, two months down the line. And have you been inspired by the way that they've applied themselves during this crisis? And the reason why I ask that question is because we've heard so many fantastic stories, haven't we, of how people have gone above and beyond during this period to keep things ticking over and that adversity has brought out the best in people fundamentally. Oh, absolutely. Um, It was for... Um, for each other and for the business, but also for the customers, because the amount of lovely comments we had back saying, thank you very much for still being open. Thank you for supplying us with something that makes us happy. And the garden has become um, a real focus for people of all ages. And it's been wonderful to see the customers. I suspect a lot more younger people, as usually it's an industry that deals with over 55-year-olds. Those are our primary. Um, customers but when people are stuck at home it was well what are we going to do well we can't do that much let's turn to the garden so it's been a great joy for everyone in the business to feel they're doing something well worthwhile and um, yeah I think we've got through it we've done pretty well with it 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's been a renewed focus on mental health and well-being during this time. And that's not just in the context, of course, of staff members and just making sure that they're in the right headspace, whether they're working from a distance, working remotely, having to continue to go onto site and adhere to new safety procedures. But also it's about clients as well, isn't it? Bringing, of course, a little bit of well-being into their world as well. And sometimes it's quite easy to forget that. I think for us, uh, the, the whole point for me of having a nursery and selling plants is about pleasure. There aren't that many <laughs> industries and businesses that can actually say it is about pleasure and happiness. And that is what gardening is about. It is about well-being. But it's, it's just it just connects everyone with the earth and what is real and solid. And it's going to be there tomorrow and the next day and the next day, provided you water the plant, of course. But, you know, it's that sort of thing. And giving um, your customer what they feel happy about. Again, it's about selling a promise. So you have to, um, as with our staff, you have to make sure that they know where they're going, what the end game is, why, why we're doing it. And everyone has been really um, motivated into uh, working extra hours so that we can complete the orders and working as a team. And the team aspect has been very important in this particular case. And it's a credit to how businesses have been adaptable and flexible to be able to meet the challenges of this time, despite some very often almost confusing um, and sort of blurred guidelines. Some, there's been a lot of debate about whether guidelines from the government have been clear enough throughout the pandemic. And of course, media interference um, is another issue um, involved in that as well. But from your point of view, with things reopening, um, of course, um, or in the process of doing so, Claire, do you think that guidance thus far has been clear enough from your point of view and that you are pretty much exactly aware of what is expected of you in the next few weeks and months? Well, as far as far as the mail order business um, goes, it, it's not, never changed um, because we work. We're very rural, and we work in a very large what was a sheep cow barn. So eight people can fit in it very easily. We also have another arm to our business, which was um, a pub we bought uh, two years ago and renovated, or three years ago and renovated. And, and it had a plant shop in the back. And that, of course, we had to close and we have no idea when we're going to open it. And that there is um, a real issue because two reasons. One is, again, it's based on the staff wanting to run it. So they've got to feel they were happy coping with um, the issues of serving food, etc. But also they don't actually, two, two of them, uh, three of them actually have small children and the schools are not reopening. So there we have an, another problem, which we, we don't know where we're going with that. Now, as a business, we can cope with mothballing the pub um, it, until it opens totally, but we don't want to lose the staff. So we're going to have to um, cope with that. We could bring one more into the business now. We feel comfortable in the mail order business, feel comfortable with that. But it is a real issue of we're going to have to talk to the key staff um, members who run the cafe and the restaurant on how they feel about it and whether they want to be involved in this or not. Because if they don't want to do it, we won't be able to do it. And it will be a great loss to the local rural community, um, which is mainly farming. Um, we have a lot of lorry drivers and people like that who have nowhere to go um, in the evenings. And they do miss that community. 
So we do feel responsible for that um, with, with the other side of the business. And we would like a lot more cl- clarification on it um, because being a rural pub, it's really narrow, which is typical of, of rural pubs and very small. And you don't get a vast amount of drinkers at any one time, but it would be quite difficult, very difficult to make any living out of something where you can only have 20 people in it at any one time on two floors um, because it is based around events like music nights, um, quiz nights for charity, uh, birthday parties and things like that. And that that is going to be um, a bit of a problem, I think. Yes, we're certainly going to need some more leadership from the government from that point of view and leadership from trade bodies um, as well, uh, just as much to uh, sort of help those uh, businesses active within the industry. Um, If we think about the long-term future of the industry as a whole, Clara, what do you think the effects are going to be of the pandemic on that? Um, on horse, because we have two sides. Horticulture, mm. I think um, I, it's been a great boost for our, our business. Um, I, I'm hoping we can keep the customers we have gained um, and they feel confident now to buy um, through a website as opposed to a garden centre. I'm not putting anything against garden centres, but I hope that we can generate um, and enthuse people in the future and build on that, which is something I was a bit um, not sure about before the pandemic, but it's been wonderful to see people reordering. As far as um, the other side, uh, the retail side on the little garden centre within the pub, we will probably have to abandon that for the moment. And um, I, I really, um, I worry about uh, the hospitality side of things. I just cannot see, unless you are a husband-wife team running a pub, how anyone who actually has to employ staff within um, a restaurant or a cafe or what is not necessarily working every day themselves, how they can afford to do it. And and that is going to, um, we're going to lose pubs if we're not careful and even cafes and restaurants. And that's, that's a worry because that is a part of our culture and our life and something at the end of the day, when you've been working hard, you want a little bit of pleasure. Um, and yeah, that, that worries me. It's certainly going to be very uncertain times um, for um, businesses in the hospitality industry, for sure, Claire. And um, if we do think about um, the next 12 to 18 months now for yourself, for Claire Austin Hardy Plants, both the horticulture side and the hospitality side, what do you really envision over the next year? And what do you hope to achieve as we hopefully move through the course of the pandemic and look to the long term future? Uh, I just really hope that we can. I'd like to employ um, a few more people in the nursery itself. Um, to make it easier on the existing staff. And I hope that we can keep uh, the number of orders we are um, accumulating each day, which we have a capped, we cap it at a certain number of orders a day because it's the only way that we can cope with it. And I think I've always seen businesses, and uh, I've been involved in this for over 30 years, has been organic. They grow organically. So you take the opportunity, seize the opportunity as it arrives. And this is a a real opportunity for the website side of the business. And uh, we can improve our packaging. We can improve the stock. We can can do all sorts of things to improve the way we, um, we send our plants out. We already have done that. And it really uh, has uh, focused our mind on making things more economically uh, streamlined. And the staff itself, we've managed to give them more opportunities to do something. So that's given them 
uh, and more more of an involvement in the business, which is brilliant. So I'm very pleased about that. As far as I say, the, hop- the hospitality side is, it really is up to the government and how they deal with it. Because I think, um, as I see, our, our, the pub side of it is about the community and it, the local community. And I think it would be a real detriment to especially a rural community if you see the loss and the closure of of small pubs and small businesses because it is a focus for most people. It's certainly going to be interesting times um, in both um, industries. It's good, of course, that there's the positive side um, on the horticulture aspect of the uh, the business, but it's a very uncertain future for hospitality for sure. And I think that as we start to understand what the new normal is going to look like and how the industry is moving forward, it would be great given how informative it's been having you on the air with us today, Claire, to actually catch up and have you back on with us just to discuss where things are at that point. I think that would be hugely beneficial from a listener's point of view. Yeah. Yeah, that would be interesting. Yes. It certainly would. Finger, fingers crossed. Yes. Let, let's hope for sure that there are some positive stories to tell and we do see some upward trajectory with the hospitality side, especially sooner rather than later, because it is a worrying time. Um, it is a worrying time. And there will be uh, job losses if they're not careful. And that is something a lot of people in hospitality are part-time workers. A lot of them are mums who want to get out. People mm. just need a little bit of extra money. And that is something that makes their life better, more fulfilled, um, rather than just stuck at home with the kids or whatever. And they need something else. And that's really important. Somewhere to go after they play football, somewhere after work, somewhere just to chill. And I think it's um, something that I'll, when you're a scientist and you're looking at, at, at basic facts, you it's very easy to forget the human side of forgetting about what people do from day to day. And that that's what I feel um, strongly about that. And I think that's something that needs to be considered. I think that's very right, Claire. And also with this renewed focus on mental health and well-being that we're seeing during this period, that is something that we certainly shouldn't lose sight of for sure. Um, I've yeah. got to say, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the uh, the programme with us, Claire, and a very insightful experience as well. And um, until we do touch base again in future, um, do take care and do stay safe in the meantime with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet. Lovely. Thank you very much. That was Claire Austin speaking, Managing Director of Claire Austin Hardy Plants. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field. Liz is the Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association, the trade body responsible for firms who provide such services to both individuals and families. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Liz. And that is coming up next. I'm Jonathan White, and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a great place to start, if we may. There's maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, PIMFA does work in uh, uh, across the board these days but of course it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago and of course um, MAPFA and uh, the WMA were merged. That's right yes um, I think it really was a, a reflection of of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. 
Um, but both, at, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nine, well, nearly 30 years yes. now, actually. But you're quite right. Um, as PIMFA, it's, it's been nearly three years now. And the uh, probably a very wise move because uh, the the uh, uh, PIMFA's been going from strength to strength uh, since. Uh, what would you say at the moment uh, is are, are, are the priorities uh, for yourselves there? Um, I think there are a number of priorities. I mean, we represent a diverse group of um, of businesses which all have one thing in common, which is that they face the clients, they they face the consumer. Um, so whether that is face-to-face or whether that is um, online, uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, but we're going through uh, a number of, of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a, 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 a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, it's, it's very challenging um, to... Um, Kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world. So uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and uh, and an investment management firm to help you, um, because it is quite a complex arena, and that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally. So um, if you have that as a backdrop, uh, and then politically you have what's going on um, with post Brexit uh, and where the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated. Um, so it, it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face. Oh, without a doubt. I think uh, it, maybe Liz, quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. occurring <laughs> at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because uh, I, I think it's, 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 a, it's a unique time almost, Liz, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it? Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um, of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um, I think that the the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of the, um, I think it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as 
um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's go- it's just it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Mm. Um, and financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also mm. quite like to see is is that we have more um, kind of money type questions within the maths curriculum because that will also then bring it to life uh, for young people for uh, youngsters and you know school kids it will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or you know that they they deal with on a day-to-day basis which is money so the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money um, the better I think because that then we'll start to promote a culture of of savings and investments, which we so badly need in our in in in, in our yes. um, in our country, without a doubt, Liz. Because and again, you've hit the nail on the head. Because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah, uh, and you know, you can, as you've pointed out very well, uh, companies can try all they all they might, but it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah, and I think as um, uh, for example, uh, with with the new government we have, there have already been positive noises at the very least. Whether they become actions is another <laughs> thing entirely regarding what you could consider a, for, a, a, a far more applied mathematics in, in a lot of uh, uh, the system. But ty- time will tell. And that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to. Liz. Yes, but I think you're right. <laughs> we probably shouldn't. Um, now, looking at, at a couple of other points to pick up that you've already raised, here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seems as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a, a large majority for the Conservative Party, and therefore at least we have now... Uh, uh, left the European Union without without dragging you down the political rabbit hole here, at least. Is there a hope now that because of that clarity, we may start to see a far more s- s- far more certainty in the market? And what are your hopes for the next twelve months? Um, I think I think that that we've still got a little way to go because um, whilst you know 31st of January came and went um you know we're now we're now in a negotiation period we're now in a transition period um and for for uk um savers and uh, and investors uh, in terms of where the rules are made there's still there's still not some clarity about that um you know we're we're still uh, well we don't know yet whether we're still tied um, or will be tied to the um european rulemaking um down the line that's still to be negotiated i mean we've always said that actually for for savers and investors we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds um however it, you know the, the majority of our of our firms look after UK savers, um, and therefore, a one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book 
that makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an, uh, we think that there's an opportunity there with definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. Yes. What we're talking about is smarter regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in, Europe, in Europe, England, or U- the UK rather, and, and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rule book or a rule book that is set in Europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model of intermediation that we have here, that has caused us problems in the past, and we're hoping that we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rulemaker. But we will see. That is still all part of the of the melting pot. So whilst I'd like to be posit- positive and, and optimistic about the market, <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of, uh, of negotiation and uh, until we see where we go to with that. Uh, and of course, you've got financial services and fisheries amongst yeah, the same piece, you know. <laughs> famous fellows, aren't they? Indeed. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. So we've still got to wait and see, I think. Absolutely. Um, and it will be a, a interesting year, if nothing else. Um, yeah. uh, now, you, you, you mentioned there, at least uh, the role of, uh, of course, regulators. I know uh, in the last month or so, obviously, uh, PIMFA has. Uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the SEA, um, are they at the moment doing their job correctly? Um, I think part I I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I, I think if you look at the the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate. Um, it, it, it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up exponentially. Our criticism is that, you know, we we don't object to having an FSCS levy um, or, you know, the lifeboat funds to pay, you know, recompense to to consumers. Uh, and, and our view is has always been that the polluter pays. But the polluters have, have long since folded by the time mm. it comes to any payment, which means that good firms are paying for bad firms. So the system, we believe, is broken. Um, and, and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know, what is it that the, that the lifeboat fund should be protecting? The perimeter is too big. So that, you know, what is the nature of risk? That all needs to be um, uh, redefined. 
we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine, well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm. Um, And that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, We're in the process of finalizing a paper uh, which we um, which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe FCA you should be looking at in your supervisory process, and we want to help you to do your job better. Now I I know there's no such thing as a a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot. <laughs> but if let's imagine let's let's imagine you did have one just for the just for this afternoon perhaps, and you were able to change one thing about that. Uh, system, and perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might well not want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could, um, what, what would be your number one priority? If we, if we were to, if I were, my number one priority to to solve the system in terms of reform. In terms of reform, mm-hmm. what regulatory yeah, reform yes. you mean? Um, I think. Oh goodness me, the one thing. Um, it is a bit of a mean I, question. Uh, it <laughs> is. Gosh, yes. Wow. Um, I, I think it's about the regulatory perimeter. Sure. Um, I, I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter, um, which is, you know, gives some certainty to to clients about what is protected and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what, What's the pathway to success for them? And what? And and I think if there's some clarity around all of that, then everybody will be will be better off. Great. Now I'm conscious of the time here. This is already catching up with us. So perhaps if we can take a a little step back and uh, and look at um at the operations of Pimfer again. It's what Pimfer do, does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organisations. Can that really, Liz, be underestimated, the importance of having those working relationships with, with the departments and the organisations that you do have? No, I don't. I, I think it's absolutely fundamental um, to any business, actually. Mm. But it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is PIMFA. Uh, I mean, we talk about the, you know, the values that we have as an organization. We, we are a small organization uh, and we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So relationship building um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do. Without a doubt, and I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it? That that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think, and because of the time here, we we I, I must start to wrap up. But um, perhaps I can ask, Liz, looking forward, and I know the next twelve months is full of uncertainty. What are uh, the plans Pimfer has for it, nonetheless? Um, so I think our well, our key priority this this next twelve months is 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 to be talking um, much more, um, and we, we we have been lobbying um, a fair bit on this. But because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into um, see the policymakers 
on both sides, I think, to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing. They, you know, they, they want to hear from us. So I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter. Um, and what does what does regulation look like for uh, for us moving forward? But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision mm-hmm. because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those those two um, are kind of what are, are the main the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know we have a manifesto that's got six that's got six pillars in it um, and regulation and supervision and the future of that is, is just um, kind of, is just one of those things. There are a whole host of another of other things promoting the sector as a, as a force for good and as an integral part of a, of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental wellbeing uh, is, is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future of regulation, future of supervision, and then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures. Well, Liz, there might never be a, a more important year, uh, or has not been in a while, that will determine the future of all of those things. And perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks. Um, but it's been <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today. Uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things. Thank you. I would love to do that. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.